Welcome everyone. Thank you for coming together to practice near and far. We're here for this 2021 20, June on Metta, loving kindness and compassion. Sashin is the word that's used for our Zen retreats. It's the Japanese word for our, in our Japanese lineage. It literally, literally to collect or gather in, which is the se part, setsu. It's interesting, this character has three uh, radicals, three pieces that all are ear. The mind, sheen. The second part, mind, the sheen. The character used for mind and heart in Japanese are the same, and it looks like a heart. You'll have to take my word for it. There's four chambers. So the character used for mind and heart are the same, gather, collect, mind, heart. So to collect the heart mind, to gather in, to allow the heart mind to settle is why we come together. We set aside time to engage in this practice, time to allow the mind and heart to slowly but surely come together. They appear dispersed in the activities of ordinary, everyday, hectic, doing and busyness. So with Sashin, we come together as people have for hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years to simplify our life and devote it to the practice. So we have a certain schedule we set aside uh, we set aside and simplify things. We set aside as much as we can of our distractions. We look to read less or not at all, limit social media if we're practicing at home or eliminate it, set it aside. We simplify our meals, simplify our schedule so that we can allow the mind to, so that we can take the time to collect the mind together <laughs> and delve into the fundamental. The focus of this retreat is on metta and compassion, the great heart, the great heart, your great heart, the great heart that is all there is and that which we are only. Today, I'd like to speak specifically about metta, the quality of all-inclusive love. So what is metta? Metta is one of the four divine abodes. So what does that mean? What is an abode? It's a place where we can dwell, a place where we can um, go forth from, go forth as, dwell in. The other, it, metta is one of the four abodes along with compassion, sympathetic joy or joy for others, and equanimity. Also called the four measurables. There's always more and more. You can't, there's no limit to uh, compassion or equanimity. 
if I have more, you don't have less. It's immeasurable, limitless. And these are some hoity-toity words that befit these vast qualities, these vast facets, these vast um, aspects. Uh, Ayakema, the 20th century Theravadan teacher, calls them the four friends. Metta, loving kindness, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. The four friends. So Metta has a couple different translations, and I think they're helpful to, um, because words fail. If I say love, and we define, we say, what is love? There's all kinds of different love. And the Greeks had multiple words for love. Uh, there's love, there's love of family, there's love of friends, there's love of country, there's romantic love, there's sexual love, so all kind, there's, there's uh, <laughs> preference love. There's all kinds of different kinds of love. So it can be helpful to kind of, to look at these different um, translations, expressions. So metta is often translated as loving kindness, or kind love. Another translation is loving friendliness. Loving friendliness. Uh, Acharya Buddha, Buddha Rikita says, the Pali word metta is a multi-significant term, meaning, and there's a list, meaning loving kindness, friendliness, goodwill, benevolence, fellowship, amity, concord, inoffensiveness, and nonviolence. I think it can be helpful to um, have these different because words fail, to have these different translations because oftentimes when we hear a word like loving kindness, we come up with a uh, what it is and then we sort of aim to hit that target. And to the extent that we hit that target of the idea that we think that that's what it is, then we're happy and judge ourselves successful. And if we start missing that, then we think that we're failing. So with these definitions like friendliness, goodwill, benevolence, fellowship, concord, inoffensiveness, nonviolence, friendliness, kindness, we know that we have this vast, we have a vast, um, <laughs> we have a vast target and a measurable one. So especially metta is an altruistic, he goes on to say, especially metta is an altruistic attitude of love and friendliness as distinguished from mere amiability based on self-interest. So this is not a friendship that's a friendliness that's, it's a friendliness without an agenda. I'm not being kind to you because I think I will get something out of it. And that getting something out of it could be acceptance. I want you to accept me, so I'm friendly to you. I want, I, I want to get something from you. I'll be safe if I'm friendly with you. It's without agenda. Through metta, one refuses to be offensive and renounces bitterness, resentment, and animosity of any kind, developing instead a mind of friendliness. 
and benevolence which seeks the well-being and happiness of others. True metta is devoid of self-interest. It evokes within a warm-hearted feeling of fellowship, sympathy, and love, which grows boundless with practice and overcomes all social, religious, racial, political, and economic barriers. Metta is indeed a universal, unselfish, and all-embracing love. Another uh, Theravadan commentator, Tanasara Bhikkhu, says it's more of an attitude of goodwill. So it's not like, here's the thing. Tanasara Bhikkhu's like, meh, it's actually more good, like goodwill. <laughs> Wishing the other person well, but realizing that true happiness is something that each of us will ultimately have to find for him or herself or themselves and sometimes most easily when we go our separate ways. So there's a kind of detachment in this definition of goodwill. And in a way, in our loving kindness phrases, we sort of hint at that by sending a blessing. You know, may, you, may you be at ease. That's how the Metta Sutta refrain goes. May you be at ease. which is not a, I'm going to help you be at ease. So the, this understanding, Tanasara Bhikkhu goes on to say, this understanding of metta is borne out in the Pali Canon. First of all, in the word itself, the Pali language has another word for love, which is Pema, whereas metta is related to the word Mita or friend. So universal metta is friendliness for all. The fact that this friendliness equates with goodwill is shown in the four passages in the canon where the Buddha recommends phrases to hold the mind when developing thoughts of metta. So that's a little bit about what we're talking about So, something brought you to practice. Something deep in you called you to this practice. What was it that called you to practice? To practice meditation? to step on the path. For many of us, as Joman often says, the reason we came to practice be, is because things aren't so awesome. Things aren't going so awesome. Our thinking stresses us out. We spend time ruminating on the past, memories, or we spend time anxiously planning for a future that will never arrive. And all the while filled with judgment and criticism towards ourselves and others, especially towards ourselves. So our open heart and awake mind gets covered over with reactivity and judgment. In a way, this is a form of can be a form of protection. This reactivity and judgment. Often some of these habits of mind were developed young and may have helped us to survive or we think they helped us to survive. We don't know, we were too young. A child is vulnerable and if we felt like love or friendship was contingent upon making people happy or keeping them at a distance, we built up our defenses. But with these defenses, we can feel separate, cut off, and anxious.
it doesn't serve us so well anymore. So we're stressed out and anxious. We become, we've become overly involved, or we can become overly involved, entranced or enchanted by our own thinking, by our own thoughts of past and future, ruminating on the past to try and make sure that we don't make that mistake again, planning for the future, thinking about all the different scenarios that will keep us safe, that we think will keep us safe for futures that never ever arrive in the way that we think they will. We're in fantasy when this body or the heart is suffering, we check out, we numb out, we think about the way that we would prefer things to be, but that it isn't and we become focused on our own agenda for reality. So reality is constantly flowing and we're not present. We're caught up in our own thoughts about it. It's like when you're in a conversation with someone and you're thinking about what you're gonna say next. You're not even, you're not really listening to the, her. You don't hear what she's saying because you're all caught up in your own, your own thoughts. So the wind is blowing and the birds are chirping and we're thinking about that dumb thing we said four years ago that no one else remembers and you probably didn't say it. <laughs> or our relationship with reality is like being with someone where we think where we have our agenda or ideas about things you know what you know what their problem is and we're not even looking at their situation or how things are just a sliver just our opinion about it Caught up in our own agenda, we miss what's here. We miss, we miss her, we miss him, we miss them, because we're caught up in our own reactivity. And again, this is not, <laughs> this is the human condition. This is not about evaluating us being a problem. This is what the mind does. And if we look, we look, oftentimes it, it was, it's protection. It's how, it's, it's due to the bumps and bruises of living a human life. And yet it doesn't serve us and it doesn't protect us. And so if you're sitting here or at home in a six-day retreat, you pretty much got that message. You've taken up meditation as a way to see more clearly. In meditation, in zazen, we over and over again come back to the present moment where our life actually is. And the reason why we pay attention to the body is that it's in the present moment. Your body cannot be in the future, although we hope it will be. <laughs> Your body can't be in the past, although some version of it did exist in the past. It was a little bit more muscular when it was dragon boating. <laughs> So over and over again, we return to the direct experience of the body as it is. And the way that we do that is we attend to the direct experience of the sensations of the body, sensations of touch, 
of temperature, of movement, of pressure, heaviness or lightness, solidity or fluidity. What do you notice? Not the name, the experience. What do you notice? And of course, then the name pops up and that's, that's part of it. And then we notice the something pop up or, or, or the, mind, the mind starts to chatter about it and then we just notice and we return and attend to the direct experience. So the challenge is we start to see what our mind is up to especially when we limit our distractions, like in Sashin, when we set aside all, our, all the ways that we distract ourselves or keep busy. So we see the mind. One of the things that about the mind is it inclines itself to negativity, criticism, opinion. And of course, that gets reinforced in our society and culture. There are complete... There are billions of dollars spent on algorithms to design to monetize our attention and encourage our engagement in criticism, judgment, um, distraction, all of those things. Um, I mean, it's amazing that we can even like put down our phone with the amount of <laughs> the amount of science that goes into keeping us looking at it. I mean, we're, we're practically helpless, <laughs> especially without practice. So the challenge is to see what, so, so there's this reinforcement that happens. And one of the beautiful things about Sashin is we can actually, um, we have a container that encourages us towards setting aside distraction. And it takes time. If it's not the phone, we'll distract ourselves with something else. I mean, if, I'm not, if, if, if it's not the phone, it is a song I heard four days ago. There will be something that will, that will come in or it'll be rumination or planning. Planning is a good one. Some of us are planners. So it will be something. <laughs> So the 20th century uh, Theravadan teacher in our women's lineage, Ayakema, says about mindfulness and metta, she says, if we observe ourselves very carefully, and that's the point of mindfulness, we will find that we ourselves are not 100% lovable. Of course, we have our own self-centeredness and self-obsessions and insecurities and pettiness and opinions and so so we want the whole world to be lovable, but it's like, well, you know, you're not so lovable yourself. You got some issues. <laughs> she's a, she's a, she tells it how it is. <laughs> she goes on to say, we will also observe that we find more people unlovable than lovable. That too, that too can bring no happiness. So should we, we should try to turn this around and find more and more people lovable. We have to act like every mother. She loves her children even though they sometimes behave very badly. We can make, we can make this sort of approach our goal and recognize it as our way of practice. We can make this sort of approach our goal and recognize it as our way of practice. So can we find more and more people lovable? Even though they sometimes behave badly. And maybe even this behaving badly is just not doing what we wanted them to do. <laughs> I mean, we can just start, start there with, I thought that person should have done this and they didn't do it. Can I still find them lovable? That's the practice. So, and that doesn't mean indulgence either. You know, loving parents set health, sets healthy limits. We're not talking about, um, we're not talking about um, setting aside discernment. 
I think that's an important point. A loving parent sets healthy limits. Healthy relationships have boundaries. I mean, this is, this is another aspect. We can, we can love and we can also say, no, that's not okay. She goes on to say, the only thing that matters is to incline one's own heart to love because the person who loves is by nature lovable too. Yet if we love only because we want to be endearing, we succumb to the error of expecting results for our efforts. A very human error. (laughs) If an action is worth doing, then it doesn't lose this value whether we get results or not. It's just worth doing. We don't love as a favor to another or to get something. We love for the sake of it. So, and so we succeed in filling our own hearts with love. And the fuller it gets, the, more, the less room there is for negatives. We fill, we love for the sake of love, so we succeed in filling our hearts with love. And the fuller it gets, the less room there is for negatives. So that's one of the things in, the, in our meditation is that we incline, we've been inclining ourselves to gratitude because the mind gets so um, caught in negativity. It's, it's just one of its things. So the story, so the Buddha, so metta was the Buddha's antidote to fear and anxiety. Let's hear a story. This is from a commentary. This is a summary of a commentary by Buddha Gosa. And um, Buddha Gosa tells the background of the story of the Buddha relating the Metta Sutta, the Loving Kindness Sutta. And it is told that 500 monks received instructions from the Buddha in the particular techniques of the meditation suitable for their individual temperaments. So a bunch of monks were going on a retreat in the foothills of the Himalayas to spend four months of the range retreat living a life of withdrawal and intense meditation. In those days, a month or two beforehand, monks from all over the country would assemble wherever the Buddha lived in order to receive direct instructions from the Supreme Master. Then they would go back to their monasteries, forest dwellings, or hermitage to make a vigorous attempt at spiritual liberation. This was how these 500 monks went to the Buddha who was staying at Savati in Jetta's Grove in the monastery built by Anathapindika. So they found a very nice place to go and meditate. The residents were overjoyed to see these monks, since rarely did a community of monks come to spend their retreat in the part of the Himalayas. They fed the monks, begged them to stay, and they uh, promising to build each a hut. So after the monks had settled down contentedly in these huts that the people built them, wouldn't that be cool if the local town came here and built us a bunch of huts? (laughs) Maybe we can just kind of put that out there. The residents of Klatz, can I build us some huts, please? After the monks had settled down contentedly in these huts, each one selected a tree to meditate under by day and by night. Now it is said that these great trees were inhabited by tree deities, tree spirits, who had a celestial mansion built, appropriately using the trees as the base. These deities, out of reverence for the meditating monks, stood aside with their families. I invite you to just kind of imagine, you know, just close your eyes and just imagine these tree deities with, their, with uh, their mansions in the trees stood aside with their families, 
Virtue was revered by all, particularly so by the deities, and the monks sat under the trees. The deities, who were householders, did not like to remain above them. The deities thought that the monks would remain only for a night or two and gladly bore the inconvenience. But when day after day passed and the monks still kept occupying the bases of their trees, the deities wondered, wondered when they're going to go away. They were like dispossessed villagers whose houses had been commandeered by officials of visiting royalty, and they kept watching anxiously from a distance, wondering when they would get their houses back from these monks. The, deity, the dispossessed deities discussed the situation among themselves and decided to frighten the monks away by showing them terrifying objects, making dreadful noises, and creating a sickening stench. Accordingly, they materialized all these terrifying conditions and afflicted the monks. The monks soon grew pale and could no longer concentrate on their subjects of meditation. As the deities continued to harass them, they lost even their basic mindfulness, and their brains seemed to become smothered by the oppressing visions, noise, and stench. When the monks assembled to wait upon their senior most elder of the group, each one recounted their experiences. The elder said, let's go to the Buddha and tell him our problem. So um, another way to look at this story is sitting down, meditating for a while, and then becoming overcome by the dreadful noises of our mind, the clattering of the inner critic, the sickening stench of our self-righteous opinions, the terrifying objects of memory, doesn't that, when those afflict you on the cushion, when that afflicts us, we, we can lose even their basic mindfulness and their brains seemed become smothered by the oppressing visions, noise, and stench. So we can become overcome ourselves by, by this. So they went to the Buddha and explain their problem. And, the, and their first inclination was to ask the Buddha to pick a different place. Like, these tree spirits are done with us. And the Buddha said, no, that's the perfect spot to get it to become awakened. So he says, quote, monks, go back to the same spot. It is only by striving there that you will affect the destruction of inner taints, the inner, you know, Hindrances. Fear not. If you want to be free from the harassment caused by the deity, learn this sutta. So the Buddha says, no, don't run away. Go back to the same spot. Go back to your practice. Go back to seeing. Go back there, even though you're afraid. Then the Buddha recited the Metta Sutta, the hymn of universal love, which the monks learned by rote in the presence of the Buddha, then they went back to the same place. As the monks neared the forest dwellings, reciting the Metta Sutta, thinking and meditating on the underlying meaning, the hearts of the deities became so charged with warm feelings of goodwill that they materialized themselves in human form, and receive the monks with great piety. They gave them food and water, resumed their normal form. They all lived happily ever after. And they even kept the place quiet. They made sure the place was completely free of any noise, enjoying perfect silence by the end of the rainy season. All the monks had attained to the pinnacle of spiritual perfection. Every one of the 500 monks had become an arahant. So by practicing metta, it was, it was they, the monks, the Buddha did not send them to go somewhere else. 
But the, but the Buddha did provide a practice to work with the inevitable, to work with the afflicted mind. And so the Buddha said, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and one who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble, not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful, calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Those skilled in goodness wish, may all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, great or mighty, medium, short or small, seen and unseen, those near and those far, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none, none deceive another or despise any being, any being, in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. So with a boundless heart could one cherish all living beings. So with a boundless heart can one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies, downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from any hatred, anger or ill will, standing, walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to fixed views. This pure hearted one having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires is not born again into this world. This is what the Buddha taught. This wondrous sutta. When the Buddha's 500 followers were afflicted by the clattering, violent mind, the stench of old habits, of old resentments. This was the Buddha's teaching. So how do we fit this into our practice? Do we need to fit metta into our practice? Is it a separate adjunct practice? It's the practice. In, medica in meditation, concentration, we train the mind over and over again to come back to the present moment experience. We notice thoughts. Eventually, we're able to disidentify with them. This is just a thought. This is, this is anger. This is hindrance. This is the inner critic. It takes time, but, again, but eventually the mind can settle down. But this is very difficult to do. It is very difficult for the mind to settle down if we are sitting on the cushion hating ourselves, if we are rejecting ourselves, if we are judging ourselves. It's very difficult for the mind to settle down.
It's difficult for the mind to settle down if we're trying to figure out what part of ourselves to cut out. If we're thinking what part I want to get rid of, how do I reject this experience? And this happens in very overt ways, painful and subtle ways. that weigh on our heart. It could be as simple as just rejecting. We notice this in the subtle ways in meditation, rejecting sensations that we don't think they are the way they ought to be. Thinking I should be having a different experience. Thinking my heart should be this or that. It should be more open. Why isn't this happening? So metta is also an orientation, a way to orient the way we relate to our experience as we are doing the practice. So metta as welcome, welcoming whatever comes. A favorite poem of welcome is The Guest House by Rumi. Rumi talks about, sings about this attitude of welcome. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if there are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. The joy, the depression, the meanness, the momentary awareness that's unexpected. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. They may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes. Each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So we can practice with this attitude of welcome, this stance of welcome. Even welcoming the itch, the itchy nose, the achy knee, the creaky back, sleepiness, giddiness, happiness, joy, How can we welcome what's, what's here, the bird song, the breeze, the sun? And so as, we're, as we are attending to our own mind, our own heart, the attitude of wel- this attitude of welcome is you belong here. Whatever comes, you belong. I don't reject you. You belong here. You belong here. Welcome. What if we inclined our heart in this way? This attitude of welcome, how would we do that? How would we do that? How will you do that? Welcome what comes. 
the itches and the heaviness and the chilliness and the sadness and the anger and restlessness and enthusiasm, the nourishing food, the complex tastes of the tea, welcoming those, welcoming the miracle in front of you who's returning your bow, noticing with appreciation And this includes our resistance. Do you find resistance to meta practice? What is this resistance made of? We don't need to knock this resistance down, but just noticing what is it made of? How does it feel? Heaviness? Solidity, stuckness, flowing, hot, cold. Where do I feel it? The heart, the belly, the throat, the head. What is the resistance made of? Not the why. What does it feel like? Is it streams of thoughts and fixed views? Maybe. So the important thing about resistance is sometimes the resistance is because practicing with the heart touches tender places. And that's where our resistance comes in. It's protection. It might be old, outdated protection. So approaching it with kindness and curiosity. What's in the way? And finally, some of the great masters talk about how important loving-kindness practice is for deeper states of meditation. That metta is essential. Uh, Bhante Gunaratna in his book, Beyond Mindfulness in Plain English, which is about the jhanas, the different states of meditative absorption, deep meditative absorption, says, um, the force of loving friendliness within the mind is called metta in Pali. It means wishing the best for yourself and others. It's also used to refer to mental exercises we use to cultivate this loving, friendly, state of mind. We say specific words and think specific thoughts in order to generate a pure feeling. And that's another way that that we can practice metta is through specific phrases that sort of invoke, help us enter into loving kindness, practicing loving kindness. Generating metta is one of the principal routes to jhana. It's also a specific remedy for states of mind that keep us from jhana. In fact, metta makes the perfect preparation for jhana-oriented meditation because it clears away the hindrances so that concentration may arise. So we may find that, as I said earlier, about the activity of the the inner critic, that because we're in a place of anxiety and self-criticism that we actually, it's important to begin with metta. And that's something that Aya Kema says too. She actually begins metta practice, begins with metta practice, welcoming everything. So finally, that this practice is a unifying practice. It unites all of us. It unites all of us because it is us. And it's what's calling to all humans 
Sharon Salzberg says, what unites us all as human beings is an urge for happiness, which at heart is a yearning for union, for overcoming our feelings of separateness. We want to feel our identity with something larger than our small selves. We long to be one with our own lives and with each other. And this happiness, gratefulness of being, which we experience as happiness, can also be described as love, to be undivided and unfragmented, to be completely present, to pay attention is to love. The great Indian teacher Nisigartha Maharaj once said, quote, wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. Between the two, my life flows. I am nothing, Sharon Salzberg goes on to say, I am nothing does not mean that there is a bleak wasted <laughs> wasteland within. It does mean that with awareness, we open to a clear unimpeded space without center or periphery, nothing separate. If we are nothing, there is nothing at all to serve as a barrier to our boundless expression of love. Being nothing in this way, we are also inevitably everything. Everything does not mean self-aggrandizement, but a decisive recognition of interconnection. We are not separate. Both the clear open space of nothing and the interconnection of everything awaken us to our, to our true nature. So let us do this practice of welcome together so that we might realize this together this practice that radiates kindness over the entire world without exception. Don't leave yourself out. You too, you too belong. Welcome. Thank you.